Welcome, welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Towson, and this is the Tech Strategy Podcast, where we analyze the best digital businesses of the U.S., China, and Asia. And the topic for today, why American citizens must protect TikTok. So I guess a little bit political. It's kind of big news. Um, It's been in the papers everywhere. Uh, TikTok was before congressional hearing last week. Uh, A lot going on. The bill that this is related to is now moving forward. And um, I thought I would give you the case that maybe you're not hearing because you're kind of most people are sort of saying the same thing, particularly in Washington, D.C. about, oh, yeah, let's ban this thing and blah, blah. I'll argue the opposite. I think it is absolutely crucial to protect this company for at least the near future. And I'll, I'll give you a sort of the counter argument. Uh, and that'll be the topic for today. So a little bit, I don't know, maybe not political, but I actually think there's this really comes down to how you view social media. And once you view it a certain way, I think these questions become clearer. And I think that's a lot of what's going on with information flows, social media, communication. It's um, understanding what these things are. So I think that's sort of in the digital strategy category. Anyways, that will be the topic for today. Let's see, any housekeeping stuff? I think not really. For those of you who are subscribers, I'm going to be sending you some pretty detailed stuff about Alibaba. Uh, They just announced a major reorganization, pretty big. Uh, breaking it into six business units. Uh, People are talking about that in terms of uh, the political issues of China, blah, blah, blah. I just got a, literally just got an email from uh, AFP asking for comments on that. It was all political. I think it's much more about business performance and how you make a large company nimble and more agile and more innovative and, you know, reignite growth uh, when you do things. I think it's much more of a business uh, impact than a political thing. But I'll give you my take on that. I'll have a couple articles coming for you in the next uh, couple days on that. And I think that's it for housekeeping stuff. Uh, standard disclaimer, nothing in this podcast or in my writing or website is investment advice. The numbers and information for me and any guests may be incorrect. The views and opinions expressed may no longer be relevant or accurate. Overall, investing is risky. This is not investment, legal, or tax advice. Do your own research. And with that, let's get into TikTok. Now, I don't really have any major concepts for today. Uh, sort of the two that I think are important in just sort of digital thinking, digital strategy is obviously social media, which it's a strange, strange animal. It's a very sort of odd business model. And the other topic is probably information flows. Uh, if, you, if you listen to, say, um, Alan Zhang, uh, you know, the, the leader of WeChat, he talks about information flows all the time. Uh, not just on our phones, but in our lives and where we hear things and to what degree those are controlled and manipulated. Uh, Once you start seeing the world in terms of information flows, not only across society, but just to yourself, you realize how much your reality is shaped by the information flows that you get presented by on a daily basis. And it raises the question of, are are you actively curating uh, your your reality, for the most part, your information flows, because it will change what you think, it'll change how you see the world, it'll change how you feel. Um, and it, it's a really strange thing to think about curating your own reality. Uh, anyways, those are kind of two general ideas for today, but there aren't any major concepts. So let me let me jump to the so what. 
I'll summarize the case for why TikTok is people are saying it should be banned. And but before I do that, I'll give you a, a sort of a tee up to why I think it shouldn't. So here's the the quick version of the counter uh, argument. Basically, it comes down to TikTok is not the big and proven threat to freedom, to privacy, to security of data. Uh, the U.S. censorship regime is, and that phrase, censorship regime, that comes from Glenn Greenwald, who is definitely worth following. Uh, TikTok is not the proven threat. It's a theoretical threat. I think it's a theoretical and relatively small potential threat. I think the censorship regime is real. It's absolutely proven, and we've just lived through several years of it. That's the big threat. Um, so, point number two, for now, TikTok is necessary to break that censorship information monopoly and to restore free speech. Uh, to Silicon Valley in particular. If you're going to engage in <clears throat> censorship, you need a monopoly. It doesn't work if you have 80%. you got to have 100 because otherwise it's got... Well, there's a couple ways that that call it a monopoly is being broken right now, and TikTok is one of them. So for now, it needs to be protected. Okay, so that's my basic argument. Now we'll sort of get into digital strategy and how I get to that, which you may or may not agree with. That's a... You know, that's, to a large degree, a political argument, I suppose. Okay, so we start with this question. Um, why is there such uniform agreement in Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley for banning TikTok? It's uniform. And that's strange because, well, one, in, in Washington, D.C., it's unprecedented. The Democrats and the Republicans don't agree on literally anything except for this. So that's strange. And then Silicon Valley seems to be for it as well. So that, that kind of sets my, my spider sense tingling a little bit. And then, okay, what's the counter argument to banning TikTok in the U.S.? Have you even heard one? Like... I've heard the argument for over and over and over. Have you heard of one counter-argument, really? Um, another question. This is basically, for all the talk, an argument to pass a bill that would give Congress the ability to ban media companies. Now, they will say, oh, it's only foreign. Well, typically what happens when a new power is introduced, it begins as a foreign thing, like surveillance in the Middle East, and then it gets expanded into the U.S., happens almost every time, and it grows over time. It never gets smaller, almost never. Um, and then other one would be like, what else is in this bill that is about banning TikTok? And we're seeing drafts of it now, and it looks like sweeping power to regulate the Internet. That's what it looks like. We'll see. I'm not, it's not my area. But from what I've seen, it's a lot, it's a lot more than just TikTok. So what comes to my mind, because I have a suspicious mind, is there's an old George Carlin quote, the comedian George Carlin, and his quote is, uh, the word bipartisan usually means that some larger than normal deception is being carried out, <laughs> right? Which is kind of funny. Okay, it's, you know, is that what's going on here? Anyways, let's sort of start with a healthy dose of suspicion, at least for me. 
But we'll put that aside and we'll say, let's operate in good faith and assume the arguments are up front and just go through the pros and cons of this. And I'm going to focus on the cons because I don't hear anyone else doing it too much. A little bit here and there, not much. Uh, If you go on TikTok this week, you'll see huge amounts of videos on this subject like protect TikTok. So they're they're clearly using that um, to get their message out, which is totally fair. Okay, so I guess point one. Uh, That was point one. Point two. It's really not worth watching the congressional hearing on TikTok uh, with the CEO shows that you don't do it. It's like five and a half hours. It's almost entirely useless. It's largely embarrassing because it's, I mean, there are, there are some good questions here and there, but the amount of political theater and stupid questions, it's, it's the majority. You're going to watch four and a half hours of that to get to the other stuff. So don't do it. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for the statement that um, the TikTok CEO showed you that he put out prior to his testimony. I'll put the whole statement there. You can read it. It's it's not bad. It's it's you can hear most of his main points and he stuck to them. You can read it. It's about two pages. Um, okay, fine. That that's primary source information. It's worth scanning it quickly. I'll put the link there. Um, and then you know when you look at the testimony and the reports about it, the the thing that everybody said was it was surprising how how bipartisan it was. Democrats, Republicans, all basically attacking TikTok and really China. Um, it seems to be the only thing that two parties agree upon. Now, the case for banning TikTok or forcing a sale to a U.S. company or forcing something else usually falls into two categories. Um, one, it's the standard argument, which is like, we've got to protect um privacy and data security of Americans. That's the main argument. I think that's actually the weakest one, or or let's say not weak, the least believable one. Because as far as I can tell, the U.S. government and the politicians and all of this have not cared one whit for the privacy and data security of Americans in the past 15 years. I can't think of a single thing they've done. Facebook, so they're, they're just running rampant. And we've never seen anything happen out of D.C. So the argument that they suddenly care, yeah, I don't really buy it. But there are good points, good arguments. The, the two strongest arguments, I think, in favor of, of banning or forcing a sale is it is not a good idea to have a Chinese-owned media company widely used in the United States by 150 million Americans on a monthly basis. That has serious questions because, it, as, I'll, as I'll argue shortly, social media has a very powerful effect on society, culture, news, politics, everything. Now, and I, I would say the same thing if it wasn't China, if it was Russia. If it was, I'd probably say the same thing if it was France. I, I don't like the idea of foreign companies uh, having such a pervasive role in uh, American society. And I would say that about pretty much any country. I'd say the same thing about Facebook's pervasive role in India. You know, this is about sort of local information flows. I think that's a solid argument, which people are calling, I call it info-nationalism. Other people call it tech-nationalism. There's another solid argument 
which I've made before, which is the U.S. is shifting its approach to China away from, hey, here's the WTO, here's the trade agreements, everyone, these apply to everybody. They are shifting China into a separate category, which is sort of titled reciprocity. Um, if you raise tariffs on, I don't know, steel, 20%, we are going to immediately respond with tariffs around reciprocal actions in real time, of which Donald Trump was really good at. So there's an argument that the U.S. and China are moving more towards a reciprocal relationship. Um, and you could argue that applies here because the truth is Facebook, Twitter, YouTube are all banned in China. So if you think recipro reciprocity is the right posture, then it makes sense that, okay, then Chinese companies can't be in the U.S. to do media. Both of those, are, I think, are solid arguments. Okay. Um, put that aside for a moment. Now let's talk about social media, and then I'll, I'll circle back and sort of put it together. Why is social media so important? Why is it so powerful? And why is everybody trying to get their hands on the wheel? Why does everyone want to be in control of these very powerful companies? And everybody does. Um, and the big issue is, um, as I said, this is the biggest source of information flows for people, for society. It shapes news. If, if Facebook doesn't cover something and Google doesn't cover something, did it really happen? And we can see them doing blanket bans on certain subjects and then promoting other events. This is what happened in the news today. It shapes uh, culture. What values are promoted? What values are um, not to be promoted? What behavior is acceptable? What behavior is not acceptable? And ultimately, it shapes politics. You know, the Hunter Biden laptop story was a major event that was actively censored by Twitter, Facebook, and everyone else. And in retrospect, it turned out to be true. Okay, I mean... Did that have an impact on the election? I don't know, but you can't argue that wasn't like significant as an event. And most of these companies, Facebook and Twitter, have since apologized. They said we were wrong to do it. Um, so, yeah, it's just important. And we're not just talking about information flows between organizations and individuals, political parties, corporations, churches. But we're also talking about information flows between people. Sharing things with friends, sharing things with family. You know, all of that information is very important. Information flows in communication. Um, the consolidation of these social media companies into a couple companies has created the ability to control society and politics on a level that no one has ever seen before, in my opinion. Okay. What is really going on? How do you take apart the mechanics? Here's how I take apart the mechanics. I think social media is basically three phenomenon we already know combined. Uh, phenomenon one, we'll call it the media. Phenomenon two, we will call religious institution, churches, synagogues, mosques. Phenomenon three, local government, city councils, mayor's offices, small towns. Um, let me sort of walk through those. Okay, so let's say media. Everyone understands media. Traditionally, media was newspaper, radio, television. 
Um, newspapers were historically local monopolies. One major newspaper in New York, one major newspaper in Boston. Radio and television, we had national oligopolies, NBC, CBS, NBC, ABC. Um, and all of those were very powerful. And people knew this because, you know, if you owned one of these companies, you weren't just a wealthy person. You were considered politically important. Steve Forbes, the editors of the New York Times, they weren't just business people who were successful. They were recognized as key pillars of society. Um, you know, and eventually this becomes called the uh, fourth branch of government. I mean, it was really powerful. Everyone kind of accepted that. Now, there's two characteristics, and this is how it ties to social media, that I think you need to look at when you see media like that. The first is there is always an important human editorial function happening. There was always an editor-in-chief of a newspaper. That's the person who decided what story mattered, what story didn't, what was on the front page, what was on the back page, what was above the fold, what was not. Uh, they decided what was accurate and reportable and what was not. So what they were really doing was content curation and content censorship. And we've always accepted that because you can't publish everything. Um, so you had the human editorial function, and we called it the anchor person or the news producer at TV, and we called it the editor-in-chief at newspapers, fine. Um, these organizations, media organizations, always also had a sort of shifting degree of independence from political power. Political power, governments, parties, security state, they have obviously always wanted to influence and or control media organizations. It's in their best interest. And in some cases, let's say the UAE, well, the government owns the main newspaper, the National, outright. Okay. In other situations, like the BBC in the UK, it is technically owned by the government, but it operates to a large, mostly independent from the government. Okay, so that's a bit different. And then in situations in the U.S., like let's say CNN, Fox, MSNBC, okay, those are private companies, but all of them to a large degree represent certain political parties. So they are kind of political. So it's kind of this spectrum of dependence versus independence versus coordination from political power. And it's kind of always a bit of a shifting relationship and you have to keep an eye on it. And politicians, government agencies, parties always want to, and, you know, they want to influence coverage, if not directly control. And they do that by having friendly relationships, having correspondence dinners, giving people jobs as soon as they leave the White House. Oh, the White House press secretary now works at MSNBC. Uh, giving selective leaks. Oh, you were a CIA person, now you're a contributor to Fox News, Right. And we could say there's the same sort of shifting relationship between media and corporate power. You turn on anything on cable news, you're probably going to see a little thing at the thing. This segment sponsored by Pfizer. Sponsored by Pfizer. Okay, same thing. All right, so keep that in mind. We'll move to the next one. If you look at religious institutions, could doesn't have to, let's say cultural and or religious, churches, synagogues, mosques, um, Similarly influential, but overwhelmingly local, not national, not monopolies, lots and lots of local institutions, lots and lots of churches, lots and lots of mosques. 
Okay, but they're also sort of playing an important role in information flows, but they're not doing content curation like media. They're really promoting and discouraging values and behavior. Um, values that, let's say, the Christians might promote. I, I grew up in a church. You know, charity, give charity, a family, uh, things like that. And then there were the other behaviors and values they would criticize, don't cheat, don't steal. And they, it can be major Ten Commandments sort of stuff, or it can be like, look, you don't, you don't wear shorts to church. That would be a judgment. Uh, I remember like walking in church one day and I was, I said to someone, I was, oh, you know, geez, you know, oh, geez, I can't believe this. And the pastor was behind me and he said, you know, oh, geez stands for oh, Jesus. You really shouldn't say that. So their role in sort of promoting, correcting behavior and really values um, is it's important. And you could argue the same thing happens in some local schools and other locations, but I'll point to the church and sort of religious institutions as outside, outsized figures in values. And this is why you'll see prominent religious figures. They'll be on the news talking about political events. Like media heads, they are outsized figures in society. And here's the same point. We see the same two factors playing out that we did for media. There was always a human editorial function and there was always a shifting degree of independence from political power for these institutions as well. Um, okay, who does the, let's call it, editorial function? Well, it's the priest, the rabbi, the imam. They would decide what behaviors should be promoted and acceptable and which should be called out as unacceptable and discouraged. Okay, so it's not content creation or censorship like me, but they did play a similar role with regards to values. And, okay, what's the relationship to political power? Well, you go somewhere like Saudi Arabia, the imams are mostly appointed by the government. They're licensed, I believe. I don't really totally know how that works. I was, you know, most little towns, blocks have a, a mosque and an imam. And I was... I was overseeing a hospital there for a while, and we had a mosque on site, and I was terminating people left and right because it was sort of restructuring. And I accidentally put on the termination list the imam for the mosque, and I didn't know what an imam was back then, and I sort of submitted it to the boss, and he's like, yeah, you can't fire the imam. I was like, oh, I had to look up what an imam was. Um, but this relationship with government matters. Um, in institutions like the UK, okay, the church is mostly private, but part of the church is still technically part of the government. Um, in the U.S., religious institutions tend to be independent, but we do see some of them aligning with political parties and political movements more. So we see the same spectrum. It's a little harder to get control of these because they're scattered and local as opposed to consolidated in New York uh, like media. Okay, and then the last one, uh, local governments. So think small town where there's a mayor and there's a town council. Okay, they are also playing a role in controlling behavior. Not values as much as a church, but you know, they don't curate information, but they do set rules for behavior. We are not going to, obviously, you can't steal cars. Okay, strict rules, law is fine. But others are much more a matter of judgment. We are not going to sell alcohol in our town after 10 p.m. No strip clubs allowed in town. If you're going to have a rally, you got to get a permit. 
Um, right, so there, there's playing a similar role. And again, we see the same human editorial function and we see with the same shifting relationship with political power. Uh, the mayor and usually the city council are who determines what behaviors are acceptable, what should be regulated. You need a permit for that, which are illegal. You can't park on the street overnight. Um, and then they have sort of the, you know, that's the mayor and the city council. And then they have a shifting degree of independence. In the U.S., local cities tend to be fairly independent of national government. But if you go places like Brazil, you have a huge degree of de- uh, centralization in Brasilia and you know it's very hard to do things at the local level because the rules are all set in one place so same question okay so here's my point social media to me looks like all three of those functions combined Facebook is absolutely a massive media company with three billion users and they decide what is promoted and what is censored Uh, They do content creation, I'm sorry, curation. They do content censorship, just like the editor-in-chief of a newspaper. Mark Zuckerberg is editor-in-chief of a three billion person media company, just like New York Times, Boston Globe, whatever. Um, Facebook is also effectively, I won't call it a church, it's not quite the right word, But they are passing judgment on what values are promoted and what values are discouraged. Just like we saw at religious institutions, um, we don't accept those words. Those words are offensive. We tolerate, we don't tolerate this sort of commentary about people. We do promote this. We think this is, they're making those value judgments. Just like, you know, a rabbi or whatever. And again, guess what? That's Mark Zuckerberg. It's also a local government. They determine what behavior is acceptable on the platform. You can't use bots. You got to use your real name. You can't put pornography. That's a lot like a local government. So Mark Zuckerberg, in my opinion, he's editor-in-chief, he's local priest, and he's town mayor of a three billion person community. He's playing all three roles. Now, it's not him specifically, but ultimately he's the one at the top. Um, and all of that's necessary. If you remove that human editorial control, um, that editorial function, these things degenerate into cesspools in a matter of hours. You know, they become awful. So this idea that we're going to have decentralized social media without a human function, no. You're never going to have a newspaper or media company without an editor. You can never have a church without a priest. And you can never have a local town without a mayor. You got to have all three. The difference is these social media companies are all three functions and they have tremendous reach. So I, I kind of said this about Elon Musk. I mean, he's basically, people said, oh, he's going to be the free speech guy. No, his values are free speech, but he is in the chair. He's the editor in chief. He's the values guy, let's call it the priest, and he's the mayor of Twitter. Now, his values, he clearly believes in free speech, but that doesn't mean he's going to let this be a free speech platform. But that's where his values are. Uh, You remove those functions and the whole thing goes to hell, like, almost immediately. It becomes horrific and everybody leaves. The same way if they got rid of the mayor of a town, the town would go crazy, right? Okay, so... Two questions become important. Um, The first is, 
who is in charge and what are their values? The human editorial function. Who are, do I trust that person? Do I trust Mark Zuckerberg? Do I trust Elon Musk? Do I trust Jack Dorsey? Um, those are, that's a very important question, and it's always going to come down to the person because it has to be a person. Just like if you have a church, there has to be a priest. The second question, which I'll, I'll get onto now, is what is the relationship of that social media company to the government and other sources of external power that very much want to influence and control them? And that'll move me on to Glenn Greenwald. Now, for those of you who listen to Glenn Greenwald, you'll probably recognize a lot of this. I'm, I'm kind of a, a decent fan, and um, you know, independent journalist became very well known because of uh, you know, basically breaking the Edward Snowden uh, story and being sort of the conduit for that information. Well, and now he has a show on Rumble and a podcast under the title of System Update, uh, which I mean, and. I spend a lot of time in Brazil. He lives in Rio. I mean, I'm kind of in the same neighborhood. I don't actually met him, but kind of cross paths a lot, I suppose. Now, he, he's been digging into a subject, and I think this is his main subject, and I think this is why he has somewhat risen to prominence, is him and other, we'll call it independent journalists, Matt Taibbi, people like this, have been focusing on the relationship between individuals and centralized systems of power. And that relationship is, you know, that can get you into a lot of trouble as a journalist. That's, you know, how you get arrested when you start writing about the, you know, security state or the NSA or Edward Snowden and all that stuff. And his, his focus for a long time, in my opinion, has been on the security state of the U.S., so let's call it, and I think he also does Brazil and other things, but let's say, you know, CIA, FBI, all of that, and their interest in monitoring, if not controlling, information, which is not an illegitimate interest. I mean, there's there's very good reasons for that. Um, and then he has written a lot. If you want to go on System Update, I encourage you to listen. He talks a lot about the relationship between, let's say, the security state and corporate media. Um, which has become much more cozy in the last five years than we've ever seen before. Where, you know, there's leaks going from security, they get published in this newspaper, then it becomes news, and you start to create narratives and things like that. And, you know, for those of you who like Noam Chomsky, you know, this is all about manufacturing consent, which is a pretty interesting book. Okay, so the argument, and I'm paraphrasing, is... Since around 2015, we have effectively seen a partnership between the government, which can be politicians, White House, administration, Congress, and security state, all those entities, a partnership between them, corporate media, and big tech, Facebook, Twitter, Google. And, you know, people had suspected this, that there was something going on. And the sort of release of the Twitter files pretty much showed it. I mean, it was just email after email every single day coming from the White House, coming from Department of Homeland Security, FBI, flagging posts, flagging individuals. And then they immediately get, in best case scenario, shadow banned or just outright banned. And that's what... Uh, Glenn calls the censorship regime. It's this quasi-partnership between government, corporate media, and big tech. Uh, 
And um, it's hard not to become a believer. I mean, you could call that as a conspiracy theory. It's, it's hard not to believe it's real now. It's really, when you start looking at what happened during COVID and anything that contradicted whatever the narrative happened to be that month got you banned. And prominent doctors, some of the best virologists in the world, suddenly they all get banned for saying something in April of 2001 that contradicted the narrative. And then six months later, it turns out it was totally true. And it happened over and over and over and over. And the joke becomes, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and the truth? About six months. Uh, So that was kind of what happened. And then obviously Elon bought um, Twitter and released all this. And it's, yeah, okay. So if you believe that, and I'm about 80% on board with that at this point. I wasn't before. If you believe that, that there is a censorship regime operating that has sort of had light cast on it in the last six months, well, there's only really three companies that are outside of that. Major ones. There's smaller ones. There's Rumble, which, which literally calls itself the free speech alternative to YouTube. That's their tagline. There is arguably Twitter under Elon Musk, and there's TikTok, which by virtue of being Chinese, um, ironically, is somewhat independent of (laughs) this system. Now, maybe it's subject to other systems, but it's not this one. And I think it's really instructive to look or remember what happened to Elon Musk immediately after he bought Twitter. Because there was a series of actions there that if you believe this sort of idea, the actions all look to me like the censorship regime trying to force him to bend the knee. And what happened? Immediately after he bought Twitter, what happened? Corporate media, for the most part, attacked him. And the story, like literally the day after he took over, was there's a surge in hate speech on Twitter. Hate speech goes up 500%, blah, blah, blah. Turned out it was all bots and fake. That went immediately. Uh, Most of the left to center politicians came out and made the same threat they'd been making to Mark Zuckerberg, which is um, you need to do more content moderation, which I think is code for you need to do content moderation for us um, or we will regulate you. That's the threat, right? So... Corporate media attacked, uh, politicians attacked. Um, there was then pressure put on advertisers, large corporations, that they should stop advertising on Facebook, on Twitter, which happened. A good portion of them walked away. Um, so that's at least three different threats, right? And then when that didn't seem to work because he's kind of immune to everything, um, the next move was let's get it deplatformed from Google and Apple. Let's take it out of the App Store. And that was pushed. And then Elon met with uh, Tim Cook and basically said it's fine. And <laughs> it's really hard to deplatform a dude who has his own satellite network and can build his own smartphone in about three months. So, but we saw the playbook, and it was the same playbook that was used against uh, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg. Um, Anyways, he beat them all back. And then he went further where he dumped all the past communication at Twitter staff between 
DHS policy. He just dumped it all to journalists. So that same approach probably wouldn't work on TikTok either to some degree. It might. But you can kind of see a bit of a playbook. Okay, so let me get to the so what and I'll finish up here. Oh, by the way, um, if you, the, the CEO of TikTok, Sho uh, Zichu, it's funny whenever they say his name, they always leave out the Z. It's Sho Zichu, but they take out the Z sometimes. So now it's like Sho Chu. Um, I think that's because they don't know how to pronounce it. Anyways, he's been doing these TikTok videos, making his case. And I'll, I screenshot one of them and I'll put it in the show notes. But his number three reason, and this is a quote from them, quote, we will ensure that TikTok remains in a platform for free expression and that it cannot be manipulated by any government. And any is full caps. I think that is directly pointing to the U.S. government. I think that's what I think they're saying the same thing. But that's a guess. Okay. That said, I'll get to the so what. Here's my case. Why it should not be banned. And in fact, it must be protected. Three points. The risk of data security, surveillance, data privacy that is cited is largely phony. At best, it's a theoretical risk that may happen in the future. But I, I don't see them ever talking about this for anything. Silicon Valley companies do this every so I don't buy it. That's point number one. Point number two. The risk of, let's call it, the Chinese government, the CCP, whatever, using this platform in some sort of media information flow, curation, uh, influence, whatever you want to call it, that risk is oh, basically theoretical at this point. I think it's theoretical. It could happen. We have no evidence it has ever happened. If it were to happen, it's fairly small and it's easy to manage. You can track that stuff. You can see it. So that's a boogeyman argument. And if it's real, it's a, it's a theoretical risk. It's small. It's easy to manage if it happens. The real risk, which is big and it's absolutely proven, is the U.S. state and the censorship regime. Um, that's the real risk here, but it has one, at least one major weakness. For that sort of thing to work, it has to be a monopoly. It has to be everybody. If there are cracks in the system, the information gets through and everyone else looks ridiculous. And right now, there's at least three cracks in the wall. There's Twitter, there's TikTok, there's Rumble. So for now, the smart move is to protect those. And then in the future, you can change it. Fine. And that's kind of where I fall on all of this, which was, um, I don't know, that's a little bit of me being political, I suppose. But I, I think even if you disagree with everything I just said, sort of the politics, the censorship regime, okay, put that all aside in your brain. Maybe that's just me being me. Um, I think the framework for thinking about social media is the role of human editorial functions. I think that's all real business model structure that we see. And I think that there's, I think there's actually some good digital strategy lessons in that. It's why I don't think Web3 decentralized social media is ever going to work. 
It's why I don't think YouTube and TikTok things can work without an editorial function. Um, we always need, at a minimum, we always need an editor-in-chief and a mayor for any of these platforms for there to function. So it really comes down to who do you trust. And maybe certain people trust one person and certain people trust certain people trust Elon Musk to do those two roles. Uh, certain people probably trust Mark Zuckerberg to do that role. And okay. And maybe that's a little bit like with newspapers. This is my newspaper. This is your newspaper. Fine. But I think that's probably how social media is going to play out. And uh, when I think about these things, I think about, okay, what do I want in a social media business? I want someone in charge, and it has to be a person. It can't be a team. It's got to be a person who's trusted and credible. Uh, that's point one. They have to have values that I mostly agree with, and I more or less agree with what Rumble and Elon, I'm more free speech oriented. Uh, and third, it probably has to be able to stand up to outside attempts at control. So it's got to be someone with some gravitas, with a backbone. It helps if they're super rich because these positions are so powerful that lots of external parties, government, corporations, whatever, are going to try to influence and control them. So you need someone to stand up. That's kind of what I look for is those three things. Okay, and you can judge whether Elon, Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, Shochu, whether you think they fit that role. Tim Cook, people, people I think generally trust Tim Cook. Um, Satya Nadella, I don't know. So anyways, that's how I do it. Okay, that is enough for today. And we're going to do Alibaba next week. So we'll get back into sort of standard digital strategy. And that is the content for this week. As for me, it's been a pretty good week. I'm packing up right now to fly to Shenzhen. I'll be there for a couple of days, which is always fun. Such a fun, it's such a good city. I really like that part of China. Uh, I almost never go to Hong Kong. Uh, I'm always sort of, I base myself in Shenzhen, and if I have to go to Hong Kong, I cross the border and then come back. But I'm much happier staying there than uh, going the other way. And that whole Greater Bay is really fun. So it'll be Shenzhen at the uh, Huawei headquarters. Uh, there'll be the, the press event this Friday, which will be um, obviously Sabrina Meng, you know, the CFO. Uh, she's technically, technically right now she is CFO and not rotating chairperson. They usually have four rotating chair people. Uh, I think she does not officially take that role until next week. But so she's CFO, so she'll be presenting the CFO information, and probably Eric Shu will be presenting the the main information. And then I think she she becomes chairperson next week or something like that. So that'll be that, Shenzhen, uh, Dongguan. First on my itinerary is uh, to get hot pot, which is always what I do whenever I get back to China. It's really, it's really awesome for those of you who have never sort of hung out there for a long time. Like, you sort of get the hot pot, you make it yourself, you boil the stuff, it's great, and then you get like a cold beer. It's really, it's a great way to have sort of a dinner. So I'm doing that as soon as I get back. But that's my plan. And then I'll... I'll be out of there in a couple of days. Okay, that is it for me. I hope everyone is doing well, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.